On the 8th of May 1980, the World Health Organization's General Assembly met in Geneva, Switzerland for their 33rd annual meeting. The meeting took place in the grand building known as the Palais des Nations, a sweeping white neoclassical behemoth that had once been built to house the League of Nations, an early precursor to the UN. The building is one of Geneva's most famous landmarks. Behind the sheer white colonnades that make up its facade, the cold, clear waters of Lake Le Mans stretch out while on a clear day, the blue outline of Mont Blanc, the highest mountain in the Alps, can be seen in the distance, wreathed in cloud and turning gold at sunrise. In 1980, rickety orange-painted trams still clattered through the streets of Geneva. The song Call Me by Blondie had just been released and was already shooting to number one on the singles charts, floating through the air out of taxi radios in the bars in the Place de Bourg de Four. Members of the World Health Assembly had gathered in the Palace of Nations every year since 1948, drawn from all the 194 member states of the United Nations. And many of them knew what to expect. The reading of resolutions and decisions, plenary sessions and breakout groups, coffee and biscuits. But this year was different. That's because in 1980, the World Health Assembly had gathered to announce the greatest victory for public health that had ever been achieved in human history. They had gathered to sign a document that would officially declare the end of a war that had been fought perhaps for as long as humans have recorded history. A war against one of mankind's greatest and most deadly enemies. An enemy that had now been finally and completely defeated. That enemy was smallpox. I'm Annie Kelly, and this is Vaccine. This is the story of a campaign against disease, how it was planned and organized, and how the people responded to it. The last battle is being fought now against a terrifying disease for which there is no cure. The means of preventing it, immunization, the world and all its peoples have won freedom. A disease which causes terrible suffering and blindness and which scars for life every person who survives it. The only human disease to be eradicated globally. The greatest public health triumph in history. But let's start from the beginning. It's hard to understate the momentous nature of that moment, that day in May 1980. It was a day that many thought would never come. There had been four previous efforts to eradicate a disease entirely. Hookworm, yellow fever, yours and malaria had all been attempted. But each of these had failed. And many of those who worked for the WHO had come to believe that the eradication of any disease was simply impossible. Even getting the campaign off the ground had been a monumental task. Many in the World Health Organization were reluctant to spend so much money, an estimated 20% of their budget, on an effort that even the Director General had confessed was unlikely to work. The motion to even attempt this Herculean task had passed by only two votes. 
there they were. Just 10 years after that vote had passed, smallpox, a disease that had been written about by humans for perhaps thousands of years, had been collectively and deliberately eliminated. It was a victory of international collaboration, careful planning and tireless labour. The world's last naturally occurring case of smallpox took place in Merka, Somalia, late in October 1977. This man is about to die. He is one of many millions throughout the world who have suffered death from smallpox over thousands of years. But he will be one of the last. Now, there are only three countries left where men and women run any risk of catching smallpox. But how did we get here? What drove this monumental effort? How did mankind finally triumph against such overwhelming odds? To get to the very beginning of this story, we will have to travel far back in time. It's a story that will take us back to the traditions, mythologies and folk medicines that travelled the Silk Road, from countries like China, India and Turkey. It's a story that will take us from the imperial palace of the mighty Qing dynasty to the streets of colonial Boston, from the libraries of Baghdad to the Docklands of London. It will be a story of discovery and triumph, but also one of power and arrogance. A story that plays out over the centuries amongst the clashing of great historical forces. It is the global story of this dream, its birth and its evolution, that this podcast is going to tell over the course of six episodes. It's the story of people struggling and hoping, and finally against all odds triumphing. My name is Dr. Annie Kelly. I'm a sociological researcher of the human dynamics behind radicalization and the extremist communities that grow around conspiracy theories. For years now, I've studied what makes people gravitate towards conspiracy theories like QAnon, flat earth communities, and of course, the booming anti-vaccination movement. At the start of the COVID-19 crisis, I became fascinated with how the pandemic has created a pressure cooker in which conspiracy theories, and especially conspiracy theories about vaccination, are expanding and thriving. So I began to research the history of vaccination myself, with the help of a team of researchers and academics. I soon became fascinated with what seemed to me an unsung story of vaccination, one of human collaboration, conflict, resistance and achievement. It was a story that seemed completely at odds with the one I'd been told, and I began to realise that so many of the same arguments surrounding diseases, vaccines and power that seem so modern are actually much older than any of us alive today. This podcast, Vaccine, is the product of that research. This is the human story of the smallpox vaccine. The total eradication of smallpox was an achievement our ancestors could only have dreamed of. But make no mistake, they did dream about it, sometimes in terms that to them seem the stuff of science fiction. As early as 1767, physicians were writing pamphlets containing what would have felt like an impossible utopia, a society free of disease. 
When, once all the adults susceptible of the infection should either have received it or be dead without suffering from it, the very want of the verilous matter would put a stop to both the natural and artificial smallpox. Inoculation would then cease to be necessary and could therefore be laid aside. Smallpox can often feel like an older disease than it actually is. Even at the point of its eradication, most doctors in the West had never even seen a case of smallpox. But for centuries, it was one of the most feared diseases to roam the planet. Smallpox is caused by a virus known as variola. A virus is a microscopic parasite that can infect living organisms and cause disease. It's essentially a rogue piece of genetic information, designed with only one goal in mind, to invade another organism's cells, hack their systems, and use their replicating power to generate more versions of itself. And viruses exist on a microscopic scale that's hard even to imagine. The variola virus that causes smallpox is between 200 to 300 nanometers across. That means that it's about the same size compared to your body as you are to planet Earth. Its genome is a single DNA molecule, but this tiny biological entity is able to wreak havoc on the human bodies it latches onto. The virus travelled primarily through the air, suspended in water droplets exhaled from the lungs of an infected person. If these droplets were inhaled by another person, then the variola virus would latch onto the mucous membranes of the mouth, throat and respiratory tract. From there, it migrated to regional lymph nodes and began to multiply. By around the 12th day of infection, the virus can be found throughout the entire bloodstream of its victim. From there, its takeover of the body would be complete. It would then spread to the spleen, bone marrow and lymph nodes and continue to replicate itself. On the outside, the first sign was usually the same as a common cold. A slight cough, a fever, then muscle pain, headache and fatigue. The disease would often infiltrate the digestive tract, causing nausea and vomiting. It's only by about 12 days after infection that the first red spots, known as an anthem, would appear. It's at this point that the cold certainty would begin to dawn on its victim of what had just infected them. In more modern times, the fatality rate of smallpox was around 20%, but for most of history, the disease was known for killing around one in three people who caught it. One tragic portrait of the effects of the disease can be found in the case of 40-year-old medical photographer Janet Parker, the last person to ever suffer from smallpox in the United Kingdom. Parker actually didn't catch the disease naturally, but from a lab accident in Birmingham Medical School in 1978. Janet Parker was admitted to the Catherine de Barnes Isolation Hospital nine days after she began to feel unwell. The story of her lonely last days are described in a Guardian interview with Linda Sutherland, Parker's nurse. She was weak by now and couldn't change her nightgown, blow her nose or clean her teeth without assistance. Sutherland would bathe her and apply antiseptic, gently taking Parker's arms and legs in her hands, soothing her angry skin. 
she ordered a blow-up ripple bed to ease the pressure on her raw body and gave her bongella for the sores in her mouth. Totally inadequate, but what we had at the time, she says. They tried to coax Parker to eat soft food. Soup, macaroni cheese, jelly and ice cream. By the end of the first week, the spot over Parker's right eye had ruptured, making it hard for her to read. Her hair would get stuck in the gunked-up sores on her shoulder blades. Parker had a mirror and would use it to scrutinise her face. She would look at her arms and the palms of her hands, taking in the full horror. I think she was really distressed by it all, says Sutherland. Some people can be ill, but they are so out of it they are oblivious a lot of the time. Janet wasn't like that. Once Sutherland saw tears creep down her inflamed cheeks. Over the following days, Parker grew weaker. By the third week in hospital, she had lost the sight in both eyes, developed pneumonia, and her face was caked with scabs. Sensing the end was near, the nurses called Parker's husband, asking if he'd like to come in. He said no. It would upset her too much. Perhaps it would have upset him too, says Sutherland. I remember thinking, that's going to be the last picture he has of her. And that's a terrible picture to carry. The earliest history of smallpox is reefed in mystery. Some believe that the disease is older than the pyramids. Smallpox-like eruptions have been found on Egyptian mummies who died at around 1200 to 1100 BC. Pharaoh Ramses V, who died in 1157 BC, is even thought to have succumbed to the disease. Other tantalisingly similar descriptions occur throughout history. In 430 BC, in the second year of the Peloponnesian War, then raging between Athens and Sparta, an unnamed plague swept through the city of Athens. And to the modern reader, it's hard not to see something familiar in the description of its symptoms. The Greek historian Thucydides recorded the outbreak in his monumental work, History of the Peloponnesian War. Violent heats in the head, redness and inflammation of the eyes, throat and tongue, quickly suffused with blood, breath became unnatural and fetid, sneezing and hoarseness, violent cough, vomiting, retching, violent convulsions, the body externally not so hot to the touch, nor yet pale, a livid colour inkling to red, breaking out in pustules and ulcers. Thucydides goes on to describe how the disease killed nearly a third of the population, another calling card of smallpox. In 340 AD, the Chinese philosopher and physician Gei Hong observed the effects of a devastating disease tearing through his home in the eastern Jin dynasty. He was a Taoist philosopher and alchemist, and authored a text entitled Handy Treatments for Emergencies, in which he wrote down treatments for various ailments that could be procured in a hurry from common ingredients. When the plague arrived in his hometown, he meticulously wrote the following account of its symptoms. Recently, some people have suffered from seasonal epidemic eruptions, which attack the head, face, and trunk. In a short time, they spread all over the body. They look like fiery boils, all containing a white fluid. 
The pustules arise all together and later dry up about the same time. If they're not treated immediately, many of the more severely afflicted patients will die in a few days. Those who recover are left with purplish or blackish scars, the colour of which takes years to fade. People say it first appeared from the west in the fourth year of the Yunghei reign, and passed eastwards, spreading all over the country. In the mid-Qianwu era, our soldiers caught it when attacking marauders at Nanyang. For this reason, one of its names is still the Marauder's Pox. Smallpox not only left a mark on the bodies of its victims, it also left a deep mark on the beliefs and the religious mythology and symbolism of the communities it touched. Saint Nices, the Bishop of Rams in France, is said to have survived a bout of smallpox. When the Huns of Attila's hordes invaded France and marched on the city of Rams, Saint Nices perhaps emboldened by his brush with death in the form of smallpox, walked out to the city gates and attempted to slow down the invading army so that more of his people could escape. But Nices would not escape death a second time, and he was beheaded by the Huns. Today, he is often pictured in religious iconography, holding his severed head in his hands. But his more successful battle against smallpox means that he has become the patron saint of the disease in the Roman Catholic Church. As the disease ravaged the continent throughout the Middle Ages, he was increasingly revered. The 12th century Japanese figure Tame Tomo is another character who has entered the mythology of smallpox. He was a samurai who fought in the Hogen Rebellion of 1156, and legend has it that he was over seven feet tall. His use of the bow was legendary, and he is said to have sunk an entire ship with a single arrow fired at its hull. He was so famous for his legendary feats of archery that when his rebellion was defeated, his enemies had to cut the sinews of his bow arm to ensure that he would never draw an arrow again. He was banished to the volcanic island of Ashima, but while there, his exploits continued. One day, it's said that smallpox came to the island in the form of a raging demon known as Hososhin, riding in a boat. But Tame Tomo stood high up on the cliff with his bow and shouted such threats at the demon that it shrunk to the size of a pea and floated out to sea. When people in Japan were infected with smallpox, a picture of Tame Tomo was often hung in the house as a ward against the disease to aid their recovery and to remind the smallpox demon of the fearsome sight of the samurai, Tametomo. The Yoruba people of Nigeria, Benin and Togo have another remarkable legend about the disease. Yoruba legend held that the supreme god delegated authority over the various kingdoms of the world to his two sons. To his second-born son, Shango, he gave control of the sky. But to his eldest, Shapona, he gave control of the earth. And this god nourished mankind by giving him all the grains of the earth, wheat, millet, and barley. But when Shapona was displeased, he was said to punish men's misdeeds by causing the grains that they had eaten to erupt through their skin. 
formal worship of Shapona was highly controlled by specific priests in charge of shrines to the god. And people believed that if angered, the priests were capable of causing smallpox outbreaks themselves. British colonial rulers banned the deity's worship in 1907 to solidify their own authority, claiming that the priests deliberately spread smallpox to increase their power. But the god Shapona continued to be worshipped in secret. In India, Shatala, the folk goddess, was closely associated with smallpox from the 18th century onwards. Her name in Sanskrit means the one who cools, and a prayer to her gives a vivid sense of one of the most commonly described symptoms of smallpox, the feeling that your very skin has been set on fire. White-bodied one, mounted on a donkey, in your two hands a broom and a full pot. To mitigate fever, you asperse from the full pot with the broom, the water of immortality. Naked, with a winnowing fan on the head, your body adorned with gold and many gems, three-eyed, you are the quencher of the fierce heat of pustules. Shitala, I worship you. For most of history, smallpox was not just a disease. It was a monster, a demon, at times a god. It ruled over mankind with an iron fist and decided who would live and who would die. It traveled unchecked along trade routes on the land and sea and left in its wake a trail of desolation and death. But soon, in various places around the world, the first rays of light would begin to emerge. The resistance to smallpox began in some of the most unlikely places, by people who were often dismissed as magicians or superstitious charlatans. They may not have been university-trained physicians, but their knowledge led to a revolution in public health practice. In the next episode, we're going to take a look at how smallpox travelled, what it felt like to live under its tyranny, and how it was treated before the invention of inoculation. But before this episode ends, I want to leave you with a picture. I want you to imagine that you are living in London in the early 18th century. You live in a couple of small rooms with your wife or husband, your handful of children. You've been saving up to buy them shoes so they don't have to walk the streets with bare feet. Like most densely populated urban areas in Europe at this time, smallpox is endemic. That means that most adults have already had the disease. You and your spouse caught it long ago, as children. You both still have the scars and pockmarks on your face to prove it. But you're not shy about it. Most adults have the exact same scars. Then, one day, your neighbor's child comes down with a fever, then a headache. You don't know the precise explanation for what's happening, but you've seen enough to know what follows. And worse than that, you know that means your children may well be next. Sure enough, in the next few days, your children become feverish. Your heart sinks. The joy seems to leach out of your life. Then your worst fears come to pass. Their bodies begin to show signs of the dreaded pox. 
red marks from their faces to their toes, blistering hot and painful. They may even swell up on their eyelids so they can't open their eyes. You know that around a third of smallpox sufferers die. You know what people say. Don't count your children until they've survived the disease. And this fact is always on your mind, wherever you go, night and day. You and your spouse know you've already had the smallpox. You can't catch it again. You have no fear for yourself. And so all you can do is care for your bedridden children, waiting, hoping, and praying. We can imagine the desperation. You might even imagine lying in bed and listening to their coughing through the wall and wishing, fancifully, impossibly, that there was a way to grant your immunity to them. You have no idea, of course, that humans one day will discover a way to do just that. You've been listening to Vaccine, The Human Story. I'd like to thank my voice actors, Stephen Knowles, Darren Oliver, Paul Cooper, and Ree Brignall. This series wouldn't be possible without the hard work of our academic team. Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, our researcher, Kristen Brigg-Ortiz from John Hopkins University, our academic editor, and Dr. Gareth Millwood at the University of Birmingham, who acted as a special consultant. If you'd like updates about the podcast, you can follow the show on Twitter at Vaccine Podcast. Vaccine is an independent show, and we prefer not to disrupt our podcast with advertising and sponsorship. It can only survive with the generous support of our listeners. If you enjoyed Vaccine, please consider heading to www.patreon.com forward slash vaccine podcast to contribute something and support the production of more quality historical programming. For now, goodbye and thanks for listening.